This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have a special program, our first exploration into Mexican cinema featuring award-winning Mexican film director Arturo Ripstein. But first, our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. Megan Eckhamel is away this week. Instead, Ray Daniel is here with this week's report. Presidential campaigning is underway in Costa Rica, with a crowded field of a dozen candidates facing off in a debate at the end of last week. Our Zach Cohen was in San Jose for the debate. Here's his report. Education dominated the presidential debate. Candidates discussed proposals to bridge the quality divide between public and private education in Costa Rica, the wealthiest nation in Central America. Jose Miguel Corrales of the New Fatherland Party said the root of the problem is income inequality, the highest in the region. For what reason in the public universities are the majority of students from the general public, and curiously, in the private universities, the majority of students have deep economic resources? Some of the solutions candidates proposed included eliminating politicization of the education ministry, expanding support to working and indigenous students, and investing in new learning technology and the further education of teachers. Though most candidates agreed universal university education should be considered a human right, Hector Manestel of the Workers' Party noted Costa Rica has not treated it that way. In all of the global powers, the philosophy of new liberalism in the field of education is that education is considered as a service, that is, like a business. Current President Laura Chinchilla cannot run for re-election because of legal restrictions, which is just as well as she has little public support. According to polls from Costa Rican newspaper La Nación, her approval ratings stand at 9%. Chinchilla suffers from these dismal ratings following scandals related to corruption, failed infrastructure projects, and her poor relations with unions for teachers. For Latin Pulse, I'm Zach Cohen. Voters in Chile decided they need another round of presidential elections to make a final choice. Former President Michel Bachelet came away with almost 47% of the vote in last week's first round of presidential voting. The most votes in a field of nine candidates. Bachelet represents a coalition of center-left parties. She needed more than 50% of the vote to secure the presidency for a second time. She will face former Labor Minister Evelyn Maté in a second round of voting on December 15th. Venezuela's Congress handed President Nicolas Maduro a year of special powers. Maduro promises the powers will be used to combat corruption and fight the economic crisis in his country. The law is for protecting the economic guarantees and freedoms of the people and for establishing the cost and profit mechanisms and price establishments in a productive and balanced economy. As we mentioned last week, Maduro has already forced retail prices down. He has set his sights on limiting companies' profit margins. The opposition voiced its skepticism of Maduro's new powers. They wonder why the current laws are not enough. They see this congressional vote as a power grab for Maduro. Maduro gained the necessary votes after one member of Congress was stripped of her voting powers due to corruption allegations. Guatemalan President Otto Perez Molina is calling for changes in international drug legislation. 
He is calling for the U.N. to reevaluate international drug policy in a special session in 2016. Perez Molina cites the current failing methods of today's drug war and says legalization and regulation should be considered as alternative methods. The current international policy focuses on drug possession, but Perez Molina says it should shift to rehabilitation and addiction prevention. Perez Molina's proposed reforms are gaining popularity. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos also suggested to the UN that it should move to change international drug war strategy. Former presidents of Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico have also suggested changes to drug legislation that focus on regulation rather than prohibition. Investigators have uncovered eight mass graves in La Barca, Mexico. The information originated from a missing persons case involving two federal investigators. Authorities have arrested 22 police officers they believe are connected to the mass graves. So far, investigators have found 19 bodies in the graves. Some bodies showed signs of torture and were gagged. A dozen of their arrested officers confessed to working with drug cartels. The confessing officers said they give information to the new generation cartel and they handed over the two missing investigators to cartel members. The mass grave site is in the middle of an ongoing turf war between the Knights Templar and the new generation cartels. Mexican authorities still have not found the bodies of the two missing investigators. Brazil is implementing a project to protect women against domestic violence. Courts anonymously give women a panic button on an elastic belt. When an attacker appears, the wearer holds down the button for three seconds. It sends out a GPS signal, alerts the police, records the surrounding conversation, transmits the audio to police, and alerts one of four specially trained response teams. The devices have led to five convictions since the project launched earlier this year. The project is located in Vitoria. The U.N. noticed the project and invited Victoria's mayor to present the project in New York City. One user said the device gives so much more than immediate safety. It gives her the confidence to rebuild her life and leave her home. For Latin Pulse, I'm Ray Daniel. Thanks, Ray. And now, sprinkle some hot sauce on your popcorn. That follows a very Mexican tradition. It's time for us to bring you to the movies through our online radio program. But a note to parents first. Parental guidance is suggested. Explorer, this is Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Mission abort. Repeat. Mission abort. Explorer, this is Kowalski confirming visual contact with debris. Debris is from a BSE set. Repeat. I have Dr. Stone requesting faster transport. We have to go. We have to go, go, go. Kennedy reports meteorological conditions. Go, go. Houston, Explorer, copy. Explorer, Dr. Stone requesting faster transport to Bay Area. Explore, do you copy? You might wonder, what does this fall's Hollywood hit, Gravity, have to do with Mexican filmmaking? Well, the answer is in the credits, starting with Mexican director Alfonso Coron and his son Jonas, who co-wrote the script with his father. Houston, this is mission specialist Ryan Stone. I am off structure and I'm drifting. Do you copy? Some critics and film aficionados might argue the Curons have little to do with Mexican filmmaking now and belong more to a global film culture. 
Professor Jeff Middens at American University is one who holds that view. Gonzalez Iñárritu, Cuarón, and uh, Del Toro. In this country, they're almost referred to as the Mexican trio. Uh, they did all get nominations at the same time. They're very good friends. They actually show each other their work and uh, often are very um, influential in each other's decisions, even for projects. I consider them international directors. They definitely have a base in Mexico, but all of them have just a foot in Mexico, shall we say. And I think from the beginning of their careers, they are uncomfortable with Mexican movie making the way that it was in the 90s. Mexico's cinematic traditions begin in the late 19th century. Like many countries influenced by the first film experiments of Thomas Edison, and the French filmmakers, the Lumières. But the Mexican Revolution influenced a boom in cinemas, and soon Mexican theatrical films and documentary makers were competing with both Hollywood and others. The legacy of that tradition remains today, as Mexico has the largest film and television production industry in Latin America. World War II actually affects Latin American cinema in general. Um, before World War II, you have huge industries in Mexico and in Argentina and in Brazil. But uh, with the coming of World War II and because celluloid is made of the same material as bombs, uh, there's a great rationing of film, of film stock. And for all intents and purposes, the United States basically denies film to Argentina and Brazil. And that leaves Mexico as the dominant force in, in filmmaking in Latin America. Even before the war, Mexico cinema was noted globally for its rich content. Using its economic advantages, Mexico's film industry amplified what has become known as its golden era, a period that stretched for a generation through the 1950s. Middens says a film like Adventurera, starring Cuban actress Ninon Sevilla, epitomizes the golden era. You probably wouldn't be familiar with the star of that movie. Uh, her name is Ninon Sevilla, but she was born in Cuba. She was I got to meet her at a film festival in 1994, and in her 70s, she was this presence that was almost too big for the room that we were in. Uh, the movie is a cabaret film, which means that it's a combination of a musical and a film noir and a gangster movie. I mean... It's, it's in, and a melodrama, and I mean, it's hilarious through the whole way through. But by the 1960s, with a few exceptions, Mexico's cinematic heyday started to slip away. It, it does go away, in part because it's not radical enough. It seems um, that'll change a little bit later, but it, it's true through the 70s and the 80s. It's, it's almost as if Mexican cinema, I wouldn't say it becomes irrelevant, but it definitely takes a backseat to some other cinemas. One of the exceptional filmmakers working in Mexico during this era is director Luis Buñuel. Buñuel is a Spanish director, but he finds the Mexican cinematic canvas very appealing. I mean, Buñuel has a great love and connection to Mexico. He's, a lot of people consider Buñuel to be a very much a European director, and certainly he's, you know, famous for a lot of the late movies that are in French and, you know, the very, very early surrealist movies. But once Franco comes into power, 
uh, Buñuel has to leave, and he originally tries to come to... Has the, to leave Spain. Has to leave Spain, yes. Uh, he then tries to come to the United States, but there's a slight problem that he's a communist, so that doesn't go very well here. And he leaves for Mexico and uh, uh, starts making movies there and actually makes... I mean, we think of Buñuel as a very, you know, uh, artsy, very, you know, heavily surrealist filmmaker. And certainly those are his most well-known films. In Mexico, however, and a, a good number of his movies are regular films. They're melodramas. They're very, uh, they're very much like other filmmakers with maybe a touch of surrealism added to it. Buñuel makes perhaps his greatest film, Los Olvidados, the Young and the Damned, in Mexico at the height of the Golden Era. The Young and the Damned is probably uh, historically the first connection to what we would call Italian neorealist filmmaking from the 40s that's very, you know, the the neorealists come up because all of their film studios are bombed to pieces. So it's either don't make movies or make movies in outside studios in, in, in a different fashion and showing the reality of the world. The, of the world around them, that is. This influences all sorts of other filmmaking elsewhere. To some extent, it influences the French New Wave and uh, uh, perhaps most uh, immediately. But in Mexico, uh, nobody's making these kinds of movies. Everyone's making the very melodramas that I, uh, these, these very fantastic melodramas, these grand, you know, uh, everyone is crying. My mother has to become a whore in order to uh, make money for the family. I mean, you know, there's, it's, it's very related to what we now would call telenovelas, but these, these are very much novelas, you know, in a cinematic form. Everyone's making those kind of movies, and they're incredibly popular. Uh, Los Olvidados is a completely is is a complete change. It's a very it's a movie about the now. It's a movie about uh, children. It's a movie not about um, uh, fancy people. Vaya, vaya there's a great moment in the movie when you think that everything is going to be okay because a boy who has had just a horrible life and his mother doesn't even care for him and he's being implicated in a murder, uh, he gets uh, brought to a progressive home and they're going out of farm and he's going to learn a trade and we get this happy music that comes in and he goes out the 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 um the director of the school basically says you know i'm going to trust you and uh, i'm going to give you some money i want you to go get a pack of cigarettes down the street and the kid happily goes down the street and you think everything is going to be okay and um, the main antagonist is right around the corner, grabs him, steals the money, and everything. I mean, it's all over then. And it's it, to some extent, it's a reflection of reality. Mexico City does not look pretty in this movie. And it's pointed it, from the very beginning of the movie where uh, Buñuel shows other world capitals. And then he says, uh, this is not one of these happy movies. This is, this is talking about reality. Los Olvidados then becomes an inspiration for the rest of Latin America and really the rest of the third world. Buñuel won the Best Director Award at Cannes for his work on Los Olvidados. When we come back, we'll talk to Mexican film director Arturo Ripstein about how Buñuel influenced his work. Stay with us. Stay with us. 
A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse and our special on Mexican cinema and filmmaking. Recently, Mexican filmmaker Arturo Ripstein visited our studios and we talked to him about what inspired him to make films, including the films of Luis Buñuel. I, I knew Buñuel and uh, he's one of the great artists, not only filmmakers, uh, he's one of the great artists of the 20th century, no doubt about that. And I knew him because he was there and he was a friend of my father. I was uh, a son of a producer. Learning to do films then was uh, through watching them or uh, reading about them. And watching films then, that's uh, 50 years ago or more, you had to go to the movie theater. You couldn't watch it at home. There, were, there was no, no format for that. And uh, the way I learned is asking the uh, directors that worked for my father or were, that were friends with my father if I could go visit their sets. And I learned the, the craft like that. So one of the directors that uh, allowed me in his uh, set in, uh, to, to see his work was Buñuel. So somebody invented that I was his assistant, and it's been a burden for many, many, many years. But Buñuel, a man that I very much love because he was kind to me, and uh, of which I admire some of his films, is not by no means my favorite director. And now Professor Jeff Middens rejoins the conversation. They're definitely friends. Buñuel and Ripstein uh, were were more than acquaintances. I uh, His father... Uh, Ripstein's father, that is, does uh, produces a number of Buñuel's films. Um, once he comes into his own as a filmmaker, though, Buñuel, that is, uh, then he makes uh, Los Olvidados, The Young and the Damned. That sort of changes everything for everyone, um, uh, really on an international scale. And then he starts making his, his Buñuel's, uh, it's arguable that Buñuel's most interesting period actually happens in Mexico. You know, he makes El, the exterminating angel. He makes um, uh, Viridiana. All of these fantastically rich and interesting films. And it's this time when Ripstein actually becomes his acquaintance. Uh, there have been a number of rumors that have said that Ripstein actually was an assistant to his on the film. Ripstein denies that entirely, that merely he 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 was on the set, um, probably thanks to his father, when he tells his father, I'd like to, I'm interested in movies. He goes and hangs out on Bunuel's set. That's possibly the best education you could get. So is there a director or is there a film that you, or set of films that you feel are most influential to you? Oh, yes, no doubt. I mean, the films of John Ford were the, the ones that determined how I uh, would uh, like to make movies, and the films of Kurosawa and uh, uh, Fellini and uh, Fritz Lang and uh, a few others in that in, in, in that area, mostly black and white filmmakers. And of course, Buñuel is, uh, I'm grateful because he opened my eyes to options. Being a son of a producer, I thought that the only films possible were the ones that my father did, which were very commercial, 
very uh, normal, now no, not ambitious films at all. And when I saw uh, Buñuel's film, the first film that I saw by Buñuel, Nazarín, I, I was overwhelmed and it uh, opened doors and opened eyes and opened hearts. Beyond Bumuel's Nazarene and other inspirations he cites, Ripstein says the work of German filmmaker Fritz Lang has a special resonance. Lang is known for the film masterpiece Metropolis. Well, Lang was was very versatile. I mean, Lang started his career in uh, expressionist Germany, then came to the States uh, after after the, the conflict in the in, in the 30s, and uh, uh, he made all sorts of films. He made westerns here, and he made uh, uh, melodramas, and he made. Uh, uh, police genre films and he, he did all sorts of things and he was absolutely formidable and he had he was essential in one thing which Fellini and Kurosawa and Ford are and that's fluidity the secret of of, of, of art good art or bad art that's a different circumstance but art is its fluidity all, all elements have to conversion to fluidity if, it, if, if the thing flows the thing is good is there a particular film of yours that you feel flows? No, not yet. Still searching? Oh, yes. Outside of critical circles, Ripstein's work is relatively unknown in the United States, although his films are known and admired in Latin America and Europe. At a given point, I, sto- I, I stopped introducing myself to the American audiences because they, uh, what they get a foreign film is only... Uh, uh, films from very select countries, and being that I'm not uh, French or German or Italian, it, the, the, then uh, it's very difficult to, to get uh, films from uh, countries that speak Spanish. Probably with the exception of Pedro Almodóvar, there is no other filmmaker in the Spanish language that is known to American audiences. You're very well known, though, through Latin America. Um, you had pretty big film at Cannes in 2000, uh, which American critics at least wrote about. Yeah, they do. Uh, American critics have, have written a lot about my, my work, but they're very specialized. It's uh, not the critics in the, in, in the flimsy journals it's uh, the the much more serious critics that embark on this on, on these kind of films not only mine but other uh, foreign films foreign meaning not american 
to tell the story of Ripstein is almost like to tell the story of Mexican cinema in general. You have, I mean, he's born during the uh, golden age, during the 40s. Uh, his father is a, a, a major producer, and then he starts he starts making movies uh, right around this sort of dead period. But one of the things about Ripstein is that he consistently makes movies, and his movies are while they're not the radical movies that uh, other uh, cinemas in Latin America are making, they're very introspective. They're they're art films, but they're art films that are that that do have some connections to that people can definitely connect to. Uh, there are a lot of adaptations. Uh, he's a, a very uh, introspective is really quite the word for a, for for his movies. I cannot avoid my country. I can I cannot be more modern than I am. I cannot be more Mexican than I am. I do not intend to be Mexican. I'm ju- I just am. It's just uh, uh, a factor of geography where I was born, strangely enough. with uh, I, I, I was not intended probably to be born in Mexico, but I, but I was. The thing that I thank, and, 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 and it, it gave me my eyes, and it gave me my, my feelings, and I do films from the, from the gut and, 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 and from the heart, and I do them in the, the city. I never left the Mexico City, and I do it in the city that I love the most and I hate the most. So it, it, it's my form of revenge against uh, what, what uh, is uh, uh, around me. When one does these things, uh, one tries to give life a structure, a meaning. Without film, without art, life would not have a structure. And uh, the only way that we understand life is through narrative, because that's how we've understood it uh, for, for, for many many years now and I mean many years now and I mean the caves at Lascaux there was a fella trying to understand what the animals were and where they came and what uh, sense of life they gave me gave a structure to life so that is uh, certainly the most important element and what narrative has done is uh, give, give things a meaning a sense, and uh, what I try to do with my city is also give it a narrative and a meaning and a sense, because that's the only way that myself and others understand what goes on. Yo me había hecho la promesa de no arreglar el vestido rojo, de no surcirlo. Así si no estuviera arreglado. Critics often point to El Lugar Sin Limites from 1978 as Ripstein's first important breakthrough. Eso ya está muy fregado. ¿Tú crees? Es un hilacha. El Lugar Sin Limites is actually another adaptation. It's, it, this one is an adaptation of a very famous Chilean novel. A Place Without Limits. A Place Without Limits, yes. Uh, it actually also goes under the title Hell Has No Limits. And it's, uh, it takes place in this very small town. And uh, the movie is made in the 1970s, like late 1970s. And our protagonist is a drag queen. Um, and so let's begin with that, that in a Mexican movie, we have an unabashed drag queen with a daughter uh, who is running this brothel and how she interacts with this town. Sí, un beso en los ojos para ya no ser ciego. 
Ay, viejo, tú me tienes que decir. This actually has a connection to Buñuel as well, because the actor who's playing um, uh, this, this drag queen is the same guy who plays the main antagonist in Los Olvidados. So, and this is now 20 years later. Uh, and uh, he's so very, you know, he's a hyper-masculine actor in, in Los Olvidados. And here he's uh, completely convincing as this you know, prancing um, and defiant character. Uh, there's uh, Ripstein actually said we, he was saying how he wants to turn all of his movies uh, into black and white films that he really wants to film in black and white and one of my colleagues came up afterwards and said yeah but what about the red dress that that uh, you know this character dances in in Hell Without Limits and he sort of thought for a moment and said no that one needs to stay in color that one is, is still something else Y él ve, por primera vez, lo divina que ella es. Ripstein is very interested in a blend of the modern and the traditional. He embraces digital filmmaking, but also reveres black and white films. I've been shooting digital. I was the first director in Latin America to shoot a digital film. The first one was uh, Así es la vida, That's Life, in uh, 2000. So I've been doing uh, digi the digital format for 13 years. It's been important to me, not only because it gave me my wings back, it, it cheapens the, the, the thing. So it is the difference between doing a movie and not doing a movie. I adopted the, the, the format because it was cheaper. So it could help me make my movie. So the first one was Así es la vida, and I've, and I've done three or four after that. The last one is also in the digital format in black and white, which is the way films should be. Since you make that statement, I, I wonder, are you making modern film noir in some way? And Not at all. I'm just making film without the circumstantial issue, the circumstantial element, which is color. Picasso once said, uh, color debilitates. And if Picasso said that, who was not the best colorist of them all. He had Matisse on his side, but if Picasso said that color debilitates, he knew what he was talking about. So the black and white uh, paintings of Picasso are, in his opinion, his strongest, and in my opinion also. In photography, it's, it's very evident that even though things have changed there radically, Photographers have adopted the digital uh, form since a long time now. They're, they do not use film, or very few use uh, photographic film any, any, anymore. The greatest photographers or the exhibitions that you see of the greatest photographers yet are black and white prints, which is, uh, which, which is the essence. And when you want to go to the essence, you take away everything that is circumstantial and color is circumstantial. It just, it changed many things and it was helpful and then it was uh, complicated to deal with. Although Ripstein holds these artistic views, Midden says it's important not to classify him strictly as an independent or indie filmmaker. Mexican movies are particularly through the, the, the 80s, uh, and actually for quite some time before then, uh, get a lot of government sponsorship. That's true of anywhere in, in the world. But in Mexico, there's, there are definite 
issues that go back through Mexican history that are related to politics, uh, how art and particularly cinema gets connected to a sense of Mexican identity that really comes from the government. And Ripstein's movies are definitely fall in that pattern. So he's an indie filmmaker in, in style in many ways, but not necessarily as a, as a, as a, uh, from the production standpoint. Midden says Ripstein's film Deep Crimson from 1996 might be his most significant so far. The one that I'm closest to is a movie called uh, Profundo Carmesí. Uh, Deep Crimson, uh, which is uh, from the 90s. Uh, it's actually almost, a re- some call it a remake. I would say it's a retelling of another Hollywood story uh, called The Honeymoon Killers, which is a B-movie from the 50s. And uh, for me, it's a very, it's a challenging movie. You have, uh, uh, our protagonists are very unappealing serial killers. And they're pointedly unappealing uh, the uh, the woman in question is uh, is is large she's and constantly calls attention to the fact that she's fat and ugly and that she uh, gives away her children that that's how much in love she is with this guy that she basically just met but happens to look like Charles Boyer uh, and he, although he looks like Charles Boyer, is uh, wears a toupee, uh, which he's extremely vain and basically is predatory on all sorts of women. And they sort of form this incredible bond that then they take advantage of all these other and go on this killing spree of, of uh, very lonely women. And uh, again, this is based on uh, a real, real life story, actually, in um, in the United States, but transposed now into Mexico, and it actually becomes a very different story. Uh, it becomes, you know, there's the, these sort of uh, reaching towards. Hollywood, uh, you know, sort of looking at Charles Boyer, you know, uh, who was, uh, you know, what does it mean to be someone uh, attractive in a Hollywood way in in a country like this? Uh, the landscape that they are traveling through is very barren in in ways. It's a really, uh, it's it's a challenge of a film that, and the thing is that by the end you're still pulling for them, which is which is rough. At least I'm still pulling for them. That I'm still. I still care about these characters. I still, uh, as horrible as they are and as repulsive in many ways as they are, they're still, uh, uh, Ripstein really uh, draws you into them and has you understand them more and more. Some critics see Ripstein as an important bridge from Mexico's golden era to the present. His indie sensibilities set the table for younger directors of a new era. When we come back, Ripstein reflects on this new generation. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. 
an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse and our special on Mexican cinema. While our guest Arturo Ripstein was making a mark in more experimental filmmaking in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, others such as Alfonso Arau tried a more traditional approach with his 1992 film, Like Water for Chocolate. Professor Jeff Middens of American University has his own reactions to Arau's work. One other director on our list that, that I don't think you see these days in this particular era, but I do think was part of this 90s breakthrough, and that would be Alfonso Arau oh. with mm-hmm. Like Water for Chocolate, mm-hmm. which I wonder if that struck... I love that movie. <laughs> you loathe that movie. Why do you loathe that movie? <laughs> um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Blackwater for Chocolate is not my favorite, perhaps because it's a bit too treacly for me. I think it panders to a particular idea of what Latin America or Mexico or uh, might or should look like. To some extent, Amores Perros could be seen that way in the opposite direction, that Mexico is violent. And that sort of re- this sort of reaffirms particularly our contemporary ideas about what Mexico is like. Uh, like Water for Chocolate is the opposite tonally, but I think goes very much along those lines of, oh, it's a magical place where all sorts of possibilities can happen. It falls into a trap of, of magic realism, which... Uh, is, I think, too easily given to Latin American culture in general that everything is magical. Um, I don't... There is that literary tradition. Yeah, there is that literary tradition. I I resist that literary... Reading that literary tradition uh, into everything also. I think it's too easy. It's not to say that it's not there and that it's not powerful. It definitely is. And when used in, uh, you know, uh, Garcia Marquez's work, which is the the bellwether for for magic realism, is very clearly using it for, for certain purposes and certain literary narrative purposes. That is not to say that, like, Water for Chocolate isn't doing the same thing. But I think it's a little too easy. It's, it's Garcia Marquez is using it for purpose. Garcia Marquez is, is uh, uh, it, it's, it's, Part of the message, it's part of how you get the message of what his uh, work is doing with it. Arau, I think, uh, you know, between that and A Walk in the Clouds and some of the other movies that he's done, uh, it's almost a falling back into, well, give the people what they want. And it's I, I more don't think that it's, 1940s style of Mexican cinema, no? Um, yeah, although the, the the 40s movies are not using the same sort of they, they, what they're using is melodrama, and to some extent, that's one of the reasons why uh, that could be the reason why Arau has sort of fallen off the scene a little bit. In the same way as that, uh, once you make so many melodramas of the same kinds of movies over and over again, uh, the, the that gets tiresome. And people don't want to see that as much anymore. Mexican film director Arturo Ripstein is also critical of some of his contemporaries, but he doesn't want to point out too many specific examples. They are uh, Mexican directors, but they are making American movies. 
you would never dream of classifying uh, Rosemary's Baby or Chinatown as Polish, even though they're made by Polanski. Uh, and and, uh, and excellent you, films too. Oh, no doubt about that. Yeah, uh, you, one would never think that Harry Potter, the, the directed by Cuaron, is a Mexican movie. So they're not Mexican anymore. They are uh, directors that uh, work in the United States and make American movies. Some are better, some are worse, some are uh, uh, notable, and some are not. Some peg the modern renaissance in Mexican filmmaking to the breakout hit Amores Peros in the year 2000, a film directed by Alejandro González Inarritu. Ripstein reflects on the success of Amores Peros. It was a formidably lucky movie. And uh, all, it looked like some other films, and uh, he's probably not the most adroit of uh, directors, but uh, this film hit a nerve, and it brought him to the States. Of course, that was his intention. I uh, think that there, there, there was this uh, breaking point, that a given moment, when some directors come to the States and establish themselves here. Before uh, Cuaron and uh, Iñárritu and Del Toro, there were a couple others, uh, quite unmentionable because it gives you bad luck. So uh, that, that, that came here uh, at the outset of the Mexicans coming into the into United States. Although I would actually argue, as someone who's lived in Mexico City, that Amores Peros feels like Mexico City. Oh, yes. So that's it, the, it, that still feels like a Mexican film to me. Yeah, that is. That is a, a, a very, very Mexican film. I mean, he did it in, in Mexico. I, I do not know of his intentions at that moment. I do not know if he ever thought it, that it would be as successful as it uh, occurred and that he would come to the United States to, to establish himself here. As far as I know, he also made a Spanish uh, movie in in, uh, in after the American uh, ventures, and uh, I don't know what his intentions were. He was just a lucky fella. So I'm 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 thinking about some of these themes that we've talked about from Buñuel and and also Ripstein, mm-hmm. and when we see Mexican cinema reemerge in the '90s mm-hmm. with a film like Amores Peros, mm-hmm. really shows Mexico City at its worst really shows the sexual undercurrent um, and violence that is part of Mexico City during that era. Mm-hmm. What Ripstein does is very different from a lot of the, the uh, so-called resurgence of, of Mexican cinema. Uh, but that resurgence is also very different. Uh, the movies that we are now familiar with that come from Mexico, the movies by uh, Alejandro González Iñárritu and Alfonso Cuarón and Guillermo del Toro, particularly those movies are almost separate from what 
else is happening in Mexican cinema at the time. They're funded very differently. They're actually funded from, uh, uh, they have no government funding. In fact, Amores Perros marks a huge change. Uh, I, I wonder if Ripstein is somewhat jealous of the that particular type of funding sources <laughs> that he didn't think of it beforehand. But the these types of movies, are because they become real independent films, and yet I think that these movies, uh, Amores Perros in particular, they are uh, show a very gritty. Uh, Mexico, in some ways, that's hearkening back a little bit to a movie like uh, Los Olvidados and is very different from the type of movies that Ripstein makes. And yet they are also very um, international. They're very flashy. Amores Perros is an amazingly edited movie and it has very quick editing. It's something that's very appealing actually to American audiences. One of the reasons why Amores Perros works so well for uh, students is because it's a uh, it's something that they're familiar with. It almost has it has a cinematic grammar. Amores Perros has a cinematic grammar that some of these other movies don't have, and that success also translated in in into Mexico because, quite frankly, Mexicans are watching American movies also. So a movie that speaks with that kind of grammar um, has a national appeal as well. And that's actually Ripstein's take and criticism mm-hmm. of those films is that they speak not with a Mexican grammar, mm-hmm. but with an American grammar. And and so uh, our audience is probably familiar with, um, with Babel, which was mm-hmm. the big international film mm-hmm. that Gonzalez Inaritu mm-hmm. put together mm-hmm. after Amores. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, would you, do you think that they're more familiar with Babel than, than, than Amores Perros? I think it, it got bigger distribution and mm-hmm. probably bigger box office. That's true. And it probably – it's funny because uh, 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 when I teach anything from Mexico almost, it's Amores Perros that everyone goes to. Uh, uh, Gonzalez yes, but it didn't have Brad Pitt in it. That's true. <laughs> Brad Pitt is a major, a major draw to this. And it didn't have os- the same kind of Oscar nominations. It's the power of the Oscar also that, uh, uh, that Babel, uh, you're right, has. What's wrong? Why is Ben hurt? anybody a doctor? Is there a doctor? Help! 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 But fearing what the spirit of man could accomplish... The Lord said, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. I need to call my embassy. Where are you? Where are we? I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. The shooting of an American tourist has sparked an international incident. It's all over the news. Everybody is paying attention. We do everything we can. For those who may not recall, in Babel from 2006, Inaritu connects a number of vignettes in various countries. Morocco, Japan, Mexico. The film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, and one for Best Musical Score. Film director Ripstein does take some credit for breaking artistic ground for this new generation of successful Mexican filmmakers. Those in the media in this country would characterize you and classify you as an independent filmmaker. And in some ways, I think, might say that you helped make this breakthrough in the 90s for other Mexican directors who are younger and and maybe looking at you and, and others in the, in the Mexican cinema um, as examples. When we look at directors now like Guillermo del Toro or Alfonso Cuaron or others, um, aren't they really following on things that, that you were 
doing in the 80s and 90s? You should. You, you have to ask them. <clears throat> I, I tried uh, to 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 open a path because I belong to a generation, the generation of filmmakers that started in the 60s or even earlier, <clears throat> the late 50s, and uh, that that were were established as the greatest young directors in uh, the new generation of young directors that uh, were iconoclasts in the most poetic sense and in the least poetic sense because they wanted to change the world and uh, they used everything to eliminate what was what went what came before them from learning that lesson in Mexico we I also belong to a generation that wanted to erase everything that came before us it's it, it was either Mexican exotism or basic commercial rub, rubbish that we wanted to take take away so we entered into certain paths that uh, were different from what happened before and of course the generation that I belong to opened the paths for the new the newer uh, generations you mentioned Guillermo el Toro he worked with me in a, in, in 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 a film as a, an overall assistant and 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 apprentice and so I know Guillermo del Toro since his very very early days before he was a, the grandiose filmmaker that he is now he likes the big films oh yes he does let's talk about del Toro okay. Guillermo del Toro mm-hmm. because he has a direct connection to Ripstein mm-hmm. being a former assistant of his mm-hmm. and so um But the criticism now is that the assistant has become too much of an American. Mm. And you mentioned Kronos, which is a, a horror film, more mm-hmm. or less, um, where Del Toro is first noticed. And he's also done a number of other films, the Hellboy series. Yes. And Pan's Labyrinth probably is the one that um, is most striking on the international stage. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Well, Pan's, uh, <laughs> Pan's Labyrinth, except his new movie, which is Pacific Rim, which that one, uh, you know, talk about a transnational movie. Today we are canceling the apocalypse! It, that movie is cut, actually, very differently for American audiences than it is for, say, an Asian audience. Uh, there are actually more scenes uh, with uh, Rinko Kikuchi, who's the Japanese actress who's in that, and... So there's a different Asian cut. There is the a film? different Asian cut of the film. I haven't seen it, so. <laughs> but from what I understand, there's actually you know, and that makes sense to some that that, that you know you have different audiences. You cut the movie differently. Uh, Pacific Rim got good critical reaction in this country, mm-hmm. um, but didn't do as well at the box office as it has internationally. No, but the international, but that is actually what drives everything, of course, that it doesn't have to, a movie doesn't have to be incredibly successful in the United States. If it makes uh, a lot of money overseas, that's actually what a lot of studios in the United States are looking at. It's why we have sequels to movies that otherwise don't seem like they deserve sequels. So this is a good example of, of your thesis here that, mm. That Del Toro is not really a Mexican director, mm. maybe not really an American director, but um, and not even a La Frontera director no, either. I wouldn't but, say he's a Frontera director. Uh, he's definitely he thinks globally. Yeah, he thinks very globally. His own ideas, Del Toro's ideas, 
have also already been globalized uh, from the beginning. Kronos if, is, an, is a fascinating movie in its use of English and Spanish, but it also envisions, you're not even sure what country it's set in because uh, there's signs in the film that are in English and Spanish and Arabic and uh, French. So it, he's already imagining a, a world, an everyday world, which is very globalized uh, and where uh, uh, characters go back and forth. He casts Ron Perlman in that movie uh, in for a character that doesn't necessarily need to speak English, but does. And therefore, it, it sort of brings a new dimension to that movie. <laughs> in my opinion, some of his best movies are set in Spain. And they are Mexican-financed movies, but are set during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, you've got The Devil's Backbone, which for me is still my favorite of his movies. It's a very creepy ghost story. Uh, but uh, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, which is his most extravagant movie, I think, up until uh, Pacific Rim, uh, is also another movie that's set in Spain, and yet is coming from the sort of outsider Mexican viewpoint. Uh, and uh, so it's a challenge to, I mean, I think that all of these filmmakers uh, challenge the notion that, and deliberately want to challenge the notion of what a filmmaker from country X is supposed to be like. Uh, and they have uh, used their success. Uh, traditionally, you'd also have directors coming from different countries of the world who become a success, a success in the United States and uh, then never make movies in their home countries again. I mean, you have any number, either because they couldn't, you know, this is true for World War II, uh, you know, uh, filmmakers like Billy Wilder and Eric von Stroheim and all of these uh, uh, amazing uh, directors who are forced out because of World War II. That's not the case anymore. You have directors uh, from around the world who are very interested in maintaining a relationship who don't want to leave entirely, who don't want to be bound by nationality. Prometéis obedecerme. Haréis todo lo que yo os diga, sin cuestionarlo. Perhaps the most successful member of the trio of Mexican directors making global waves is Alfonso Coron. His first movie is uh, Solo con tu pareja, which of the movies that come out in that year that it's made in 1991 uh, is unique in that it's contemporary. It actually shows a fantastic Mexico City, but a very uh, bright and vibrant Mexico City. And it's a comedy. Um, you know, most serious movies about Mexico are not comedies. They, they have to be dour and bleak and deal with these very artsy sort of things. Um, uh, Cuaron doesn't do that. He rejects that from the very, very beginning. Most don't remember that early 90s film. Instead, for now, Cuaron's filmography is capped by gravity. He is uh, attached to gravity, which is now a worldwide hit. Uh, and But he's also been attached to other movies, uh, particularly before Gravity, you have Children of Men, and before that, you have the small art film Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. There, there is something to be said that, that Harry Potter comes after he makes a movie uh, called Itumama Tambien, which uh, really is the movie that sets him 
on the international scene. And that comes after a career of making two movies in Hollywood uh, for Hollywood studios. So he, uh, Quanon, I think, is a fascinating figure that goes back and forth and very much resists uh, the classification of nationality in cinema. How versatile can you be with that sort of a CV, mm-hmm. a film, the filmography that has all of those. Plus, I remember seeing his film, The Little Princess. I love A Little Princess. 90s. Wonderful <laughs> art film. You know, A Little Princess is, is, is how I came to Cuaron uh, myself. I'm a huge fan of, of the way that looks. It's a cruel, nasty world out there, and it's our duty to make the best of it, not to indulge in ridiculous dreams. Do you understand what I'm saying? I am a princess. All girls are. Even if they live in tiny old attics, even if they dress in rags, even if they aren't pretty or smart or young, they're still princesses. All of us. Didn't your father ever tell you that? Didn't he? Arguably, all these filmmakers work in the international commercial field now. Less so for art houses in Mexico. But Midden says Ripstein definitely has young successors, filmmakers pushing the boundaries in Mexico. Carlos Regadas, uh, who has made uh, some very, very challenging films. In some ways, he might be uh, the person who comes next after Ripstein in terms of making uh, deliberate, slow movies that are introspective uh, and beautiful and uh, and a challenge. Um, uh, a good number of his... He has a movie uh, called Silent Light. Uh, and uh, one would say that that... And they're, the Spanish title of that is Luz Silenciosa. But the actual title of it is Still in Nacht. <laughs> it's actually a movie that is entirely done in... Um, I think it's Plattdeutsch. Uh, because it is set among the Amish community in Mexico. Now, the idea that there is an Amish community in Mexico is already something that we don't associate with Mexico. The Amish, you know, they're in Pennsylvania. Uh, so to have a Mexican movie that is, you know, in Dutch is a, uh, is a challenge. But the movie, uh, particularly on the film festival circuit, uh, uh, Regadas is considered a god of sorts and uh, very much uh, a different tradition than, say, uh, Del Toro or Cuaron or Gonzalo Signorito. Amen. Who would have thought our special looking at the history and various aspects of Mexican films would end with someone speaking German? That concludes our Mexican cinema special. We want to thank our guests, Mexican director Arturo Ripstein and Professor Jeff Middens of American University. And now a programming note, Latin Pulse will not be online next week. We're taking a break for the Thanksgiving holiday in the United States. We'll be back online on December the 5th. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, 
you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, announcer Victor Kilo, reporter Zach Cohen, and associate producers Ray Daniel and Megan Eck Hamill. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.